All right, welcome everybody here. Uh, today, I'm Pastor Lars Hammer from Lord of Grace Lutheran Church here in Marana. Welcome back to the Thursday live stream. We're continuing this little series I'm looking at. I'm calling being an unfundamentalist Christian, looking at the ways that we are different from fundamentalists, knowing that fundamentalist Christianity generally gets more of the press in the media uh, and uh, that there's a popular perception that that is what mainstream Christianity is. And the truth is, it isn't. Uh, in the history of Christianity, they've been what we now consider fundamentalist Christianity has been. There have been versions that are like it and not like it, but what you have is a really a very modern version. Maybe we can get into the history another day, but I want to uh, just explain some of the different ways in which we aren't like that and what we do believe. So if you've been burned by fundamentalism or real conservative evangelicalism and you don't think there's anything else out there, the truth is there's lots of us out there. So today I thought I would look at uh, some more of, I'm calling my little sub-series, Things Jesus Didn't Say. And I don't know how many of these I'll come up with, but this one came up, I remember in an, uh, a Facebook argument, because you know Facebook arguments are so productive, uh, they always end in changed minds, but it had to do with social policy, uh, welfare policy, and, the and so somebody pulled out this Bible quote and said, Jesus said, those who don't work, don't eat. And then I had to actually intervene and say, well, actually, that wasn't Jesus, that was the Apostle Paul. And actually, it wasn't really the Apostle Paul. It was a later writer uh, using the Apostle Paul's name. Uh, a good way to kill an argument is by producing obscure theological facts. But let's look at that passage because that particular verse gets used. Uh, it's kind of a clobber verse by those who want to oppose uh, government food programs uh, and those who want to adopt a very sort of punitive view of religion. Uh, and where does it come from? Who says it? What's the context? What does it really say? And what did Jesus really say? What do we know about what Jesus said? Uh, so. Let's go back, I'll just give you a little, let's step back for a second here uh, and look again at this whole thing about Paul and what he wrote and didn't write. So, in your Bible, uh, in the Bible, of course, we've got, uh, we've got the Gospels, right? The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the book of Acts, which is Luke part two, written by the same author. And that one deals with the apostles right after Jesus died and was raised. Then we get the epistles, a whole bunch of, of letters, mostly by Paul, maybe half by Paul, uh, to different Christian churches. And so they get their weird names because they're named after the usually Greek places where the letters went. So we'll throw up this little graphic here um, and uh, show, uh, showing what are the different books that Paul wrote and did write. And I think this makes a difference because uh, it's, it's a little bit shocking and a little bit unsettling the first time you get to this to realize just how many books have Paul's name on them that aren't by Paul. Uh, to us today, that's plagiarism. Uh, in the ancient world, it was considered just, I'm just keeping the tradition going. So, books Paul wrote. These are the books that modern scholars are either fairly certain or very certain were actually written by the historical Apostle Paul. 
Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon, Philemon. Those ones we know were written by Paul. Uh, these other books on the right-hand column were, have Paul's name were not written by Paul, and we're pretty certain of that. Uh, some of the reasons are kind of nosebleed academic ones like the grammatical structure, the syntax is different, the different use of Greek words or theology. Uh, but some of it, the, you can see just by reading it real quickly that the, the beliefs being espoused are some places really different from what Paul wrote. These include Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, the Apostle Paul did not write those books. So, the, the infamous verse in question is, is in 2 Thessalonians, not 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, they think, might be the oldest one of Paul's letters. It might be one of the earliest ones. It deals a lot with Jesus coming again. And he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, uh, and hence the long name. And he's writing to these Christians who are having debates about should we sell all our property? What should we do while we're waiting for Jesus to return right away? And the Apostle Paul believed Jesus was coming back right away. It's part of how we know it's one of the oldest books. As Paul gets older in years and Jesus doesn't come back yet, uh, he, he sort of changes his theology a little bit more towards just hold on, Jesus is coming to, all right, let's start thinking about the long term a little bit more. And that's when you get to Romans, which is his last letter. Second Thessalonians is, uh, is, is one of the most obviously not Paul letters. If you wrote a letter, say Paul was writing to the, this church in Thessalonica, he wrote one, you would logically assume that there'd probably be a letter back to Paul. Okay, here's the response. This is what we think. We have some follow-up questions, some new concerns. That would be a normal exchange. If you put 1 Thessalonians next to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians doesn't read like a continuation. It reads like they took 1 Thessalonians and then, and then rewrote it. And it is harsher, it is stricter, it is more legalistic, it is more punitive, uh, it is more apocalyptic, there is more judgment, there is more sin and hell and all these kind of things. It is almost as if they looked at 1 Thessalonians and thought, this is just way too soft. We need to, we need to just hit, we need to put a hard edge on that, all that. And so 2 Thessalonians is where you get the infamous verse that gets quoted as proof that Christians should not help out people who are poor, or at least should not do that through the tool of the government. So let's just jump right in and take a look at that. This, Second Thessalonians, what a name. Uh, all right, chapter three, starting at verse six. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. 
This is not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. You could see why a Protestant work ethic person would love this passage, right? Work, 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 toil day and night, be quiet and work. What's going on here? Let's unpack this a little bit. The church in Thessalonica, uh, again, believed Jesus was coming soon. If you believe that Jesus is coming soon, one logical conclusion is, why am I still going and doing all this work if it's not going to make any difference? Why am I still laying brick? Why am I still plowing the field? Uh, and ancient work is not like modern work. Uh, at least modern work in America with labor protections. Um, this is all day, every day, sun up to sun down, back-breaking toil. That's, that's what ancient work was like in the Roman Empire. There was no weekends off. There was no, I get a sick day. There was no, I contacted my HR and it says that I have a problem, I can't work. There was none of that. It really was, the Roman society had no social safety net whatsoever. Your safety net was your family and your friends. That's it. If you didn't have them and they wouldn't support you, you died. That was how their world worked. And if you, if you were, say, a bricklayer or a mason and you didn't chop those bricks, you didn't get paid and you didn't eat. That was how it worked. Well, what are these... So you can imagine... If you're one of these people who's been just slaving away and your body hurts and you, you know you don't ever get to take a, you live on the Greek coast but you don't ever go, get to go vacation on it because you're just working. And you can imagine they come in and Paul comes in and says, hey, you know, Jesus is coming back soon. Well, if Jesus is coming back soon, why do I need to keep chiseling all that block? Finally, I get some relief. You would think it would be the greatest relief in the world to finally stop this horrible toiling and working. And so what a lot of the church did, too, was they, uh, people would quit working, but they also tended to pool their resources. So there was a sense in sort of, we'll create a communal food bank. And a lot of Paul's churches were known for this. They would create these sort of internal communal food banks. Uh, and the original idea was to help the widows and the orphans and the converts who'd been disowned by their families to have a way to sustain themselves. So if you became a Christian and your family disowned you, now you had no way to get food. Um, the church, the members of the church, would have this food bank and you could live off that food bank. We know that Corinth had one of those, for example. So we think this was a pretty common thing in Paul's time. Well, if you've got people who are sick and tired of their hard work and there's a food bank of food, it is possible that there were some who decided, I'm not going to go back to that horrible job, I'm going to live off the food bank. And, who's, and so Paul is writing, the Paul, and I, I say that again, fake Paul, uh, is writing back, who is the we? Everything's written in the first person plural. We commend you. Well, we is supposed to be Paul 
and the disciples who came with him, like his comrades, Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, these guys. Uh, so it's, it, and, and the argument is that from fake Paul that they came into Thessalonica and they preached the gospel. They were entitled to get paid for that, but they chose not to get paid for that. Instead, they made their own living, right? They didn't live off the food bank. Uh, Paul, as far as we know, happened to have the skill of making tents. He was good at uh, patching fabric uh, and sewing fabric so he could fix tents or sails or all these kind of things. And it was a skilled trade and you could make, you know, could make some money off that. And that it was a portable trade because everywhere, I mean, everywhere where there's fabric and tarps and sails, uh, they need to get them fixed. Replacing fabric was extremely expensive. So fake Paul here is saying, when we came into Thessalonica, we did the work, we made our own way, we kept working when we didn't have to. Those who are living off the food bank can go back to work. But the harshness, if you read this passage, there's just, there's such a hard edge to it. That, that's part of why it's hard to believe that this is really the Apostle Paul writing this. I mean, endless excoriations of idleness, right? They're living in idleness. They were idle. We were not idle. You know, we worked and toiled. I mean, it's just, right? And then you get down to verse 11. Living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Bang, bang, bang. You can just hear the judgment, the resentment, the anger, just, uh, you know, makes me think it was somebody in Thessalonica who wrote this letter who was mad about Jim and Jane and whoever who they thought were mooching. Right? And so the argument goes, if you're not working and contributing to the food bank, you don't get to eat from the food bank, is essentially what it is. Uh, this isn't a social policy statement about food programs for the poor distributed through the Roman uh, distribution of child and family protective services of Rome. There was no such thing, right? And so what people are doing is they take this verse and they say, see, this is proof that we as Christians should not give food to anyone who doesn't work. And that it's okay as a Christian to sit there and watch someone starve to death if they are able to work but they won't. Let them die. And, that, and, and that's the belief. And, and so this verse becomes the clobber, it becomes the, the curmudgeon. Uh, and you see it all through politics, you know? We gotta just cut those social programs down to the absolute, absolute bare bone so that nobody, that nobody who could work gets away with not working, right? Like that's the ultimate, the, the ultimate horrible atrocity, the ultimate injustice in the world is that I, I have to work and that person doesn't. Oh my God, that's horrible. So, what, but then the other side says, so you're really just going to let people starve? And they say, no, 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 no. They have to prove that, they're, that they can't work, right? So as one person I knew who was trying to apply for uh, disability, he had been severely, severely traumatized uh, as a child uh, by the horrible ways that his parents uh, had beaten him. They, they basically had a strategy of when they found out that he was gay, they were going to literally beat it out of him. Uh, the parents should be in jail right now for what they did. It left him with horrific PTSD. 
But that's a mental, psychological kind of thing, right? How do you prove that? You gotta go, you gotta go to multiple, multiple, multiple psychologists and psychiatrists and forums and forums and forums. And a lot of states will make you apply two, three, four times before. And his comment was, they make you jump through flaming hoops to prove that you're too disabled to jump through flaming hoops. And, uh, but that's kind of where the, that attitude comes from, right? And there's a certain, there's a certain harshness to it. I, I'm kind of reminded, too, of a you know, pop culture reference. We'll go back to the 80s. If you remember in Footloose, there's a scene where uh, the, the old pastor, who is a guy who, out uh, in this little town in Wyoming, and he really loves his people, but he's kind of a, he's a traditional kind of guy. Um, but he starts warming a little bit. And there's a guy in his church who isn't warming at all and who's just very punitive. And they get into this argument. And the pastor looks at him and he goes, how, how long is that going to take? Long enough for compassion to die? Um, and it was a great line. I love John Lithgow's performance. That he did a great job. And it was a great line. Like, you, you let compassion die, right? But this line washes my hands of compassion. It absolves me of that. It says, if they don't work, they don't eat, I don't have to feel bad for their suffering, right? Not my fault, not my problem. Um, so that gets used. Again, understand the context, right? The, even the, I'll call fake Paul, is not writing about government programs. They, they, those didn't exist. There was no government programs. And, and you know, government food programs are really a mid-20th century kind of invention. I know there were early versions in England of like the Dole, uh, and there were certain projects that had been tried in the UK. There, there were tests, early versions of it in the uh, 19th century. But for the most part, the idea of the government collecting money and then distributing it to those in need uh, is kind of a 20th century creation for the most part. And if you look back at what life was like before those food distribution programs existed, you just had people dying. That's just, that's just what happened. You would have to rely on family and private charity, and if you didn't happen to have it, they just died. Uh, what was that Steinbeck book uh, where they're out in California? Uh, I, I'm trying to remember, is it Grapes of Wrath, where they're out in California and there's a family, and you know, they're fought the, this family and the mom and they've got the kids and they've tried to find work in absolutely every place that work exists and nobody anywhere will hire them and there's no charities around and they've moved to California, they're nowhere near family, so the whole family basically just sits there and starves and gives up and dies. Because that's what happens. If there's, if there's no food program, you just die. People just die. Um, and it isn't always the case that there are tons of really good, high-paying jobs just waiting to be waiting for you if only you would go and apply. Um, that was not how the world worked. People just died. Or, you know, they'd have to go to extreme measures. Go to the street, go to the bag, turn to prostitution. Um, that's what you have when you don't have that. But Paul isn't talking about those programs. There was no concept of those programs existing. When the Roman Empire collected money, they built armies. Uh, public works, uh, opulent palaces for the emperors, uh, and, um, uh, well, that was kind of, you know, things like, they, they used their money to do things like ha fill the Colosseum with water so they could have ship battles. You know, your money that went to Rome, you might see it in a road or an aqueduct. 
Otherwise, it just disappeared. The concept didn't exist. So yes, there is no Bible verse that you're going to find where anyone says, the correct way to feed the hungry is to have Caesar tax people and then create an office and distribute it. You're also not going to find a verse that says, I forbid Caesar to collect tax money and distribute it. The idea wasn't even there. Those who don't work shouldn't eat. Um, I don't like that verse. I mean, I, I think it's awfully harsh, and I think it's too easily taken out of context. But, it is, but understand that it's talking about the local church community food bank. It's not talking about social welfare. Okay, the harsh, punitive, calloused, Second Thessalonians, let's look at Jesus. Let's do some compare, let's do some compare and contrast here. Um, what did Jesus say? Well, Jesus also did not lay out a social welfare government program recommendation. Uh, he didn't have that either. So Jesus is not going to say, don't use taxes to feed the poor. He's not going to say, use taxes to feed the poor. Again, the concept didn't really exist. So what we have to do is we have to take what we know of Jesus, what he did say and what he did do, and ask ourselves questions like, did Jesus ever deny people food, healing, care, uh, because he felt like they were not working? Is, does that ever exist? Did Jesus ever do a work test? Did he ever do a means test uh, in, in whenever he gave stuff out? Uh, and did he ever recommend that means testing and work testing be done before people receive things? Or did he just give? Well, let's look at Mark 6. Uh, Mark 6. As he went ashore, he, Jesus, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So, kind of setting the stage here, right? The crowd's always following Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he's always being followed by a huge crowd of needy people. And, and Jesus looks on them, and it, says he, they, and it said he had compassion for them. They were like a sheep without a shepherd. He doesn't say he had resentment for them because they keep pestering him for free food. There is, there is a spot, I will admit, there's one spot in the Gospels where a big crowd comes together and Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, are you here to hear about the word or only because you heard there were loaves and fishes? Um, and we know the answer, they were there for the loaves and fishes, right? But I don't really hold that against somebody who's living on the edge of starvation. I don't blame them for wanting to get loaves and fishes. Um, but he still gives them the loaves and fishes. Um, there, there is that one case. But look, so all this crowd's coming at him. And so what does he do? He goes to a deserted place. And then he says, uh, says to his disciples, uh, go get them something to eat. You know, or they tell Jesus, send them home. So they get something to eat. And Jesus said, you feed them. And then they're like, well, we don't have the money to do it. 
it's a little bit kind of like one of those setups like you see in the Gospel of John, right? Where Jesus is kind of gives them a command and then they don't quite know how to answer it, throws them off a little bit, and he's going to turn it into a teaching lesson, right? So let's go to the next chunk, uh, starting at verse 38. And Jesus said to them, How many loaves have you? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Probably a little bit of an exaggeration, but we'll run with it. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and ate the fish. Those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. What about women and children? We don't know, but we'll assume there were probably a bunch of them. So, um, but that's the story, right? So Jesus goes and he takes the fish. He passes it out. He hands it to everybody. Not a single question is asked of a single person before they get the food. No interrogation, no means testing. For all he knows, the people in that crowd could have been rich Roman, there could have been a Roman governor in there. There could have been a centurion. You know, there could have been a tax collector who just ate his whole pig at the banquet. He didn't, he didn't ask any questions. No questions asked. Every single person got food, no questions asked. No background checks. He didn't say, Simon, go ask that guy over there. He doesn't really look crippled. I think he's walking pretty well. Make sure he actually is crippled before you give him a loaf and fish. He doesn't. No questions asked for anyone. Um, okay, so all the, everybody eats, everybody gets full. Now what happens? Verse 45. We'll look at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After saying farewell to them, he went up the mountain to pray. So the people left him alone, right? They're all, they're all well fed. They're all going to take a nap. Now Jesus can run. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. When he saw them, they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind. He came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about their loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Interesting. I don't know how many times I've read that, and I never caught that verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So, what didn't they understand about the loaves? That's the million-dollar question here. A conservative answer would be, they didn't understand that Jesus was capable of performing supernatural miracles. That that's, 
that that is what they didn't understand. They saw him feed everyone, and it still didn't register with him that this guy can defy the laws of physics. Or did they not understand when they saw the loaves, did they not really grasp that Jesus was the Messiah? Right? You, you, that's kind of a subtext, especially in the Gospel of Mark, about the disciples sort of really getting who Jesus was. Did they not get who he was? Did they not really understand? Did they see this and they not, you know? Um, or were they still, <laughs> did, did, they still, did they still see Jesus performing all this generous stuff and their hearts were still hardened? That in general, they were in kind of a, I don't know, you call it a state of hardness, a state of not being open, a state of not, being compassionate in the way Jesus was, a state of not being open to God's compassion. Um, truth is, all of those are possibilities. But I never caught that. They didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Here's this incredible act of compassion and generosity, and the disciples still got hard hearts. You know? And uh, the hearts were hardened. And I just... You know, I read 2 Thessalonians, and that's what I hear. Their hearts are hardened. That's just hard, 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 is all I read in 2 Thessalonians. The idea that, you know, people who don't work shouldn't eat at all. I mean, they could have said, those who don't work should get small rations. Those who don't work should get yelled at to go to work. Those who don't work should get a lecture from Aunt Bessie about laziness. No. Why do we have to go straight to starve them to death, right? Why do we have to dang, why does starvation have to be dangled over everyone? Can't we motivate people in other ways? Aren't there other ways? Um, you know, why is it that, why, why, why is it that harshness? But I just, you know, I noticed that. They didn't understand, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. And it will take a long time for the disciples to get to a place where they start seeing people with an open heart, right? Okay, let's keep going. We'll just finish up this little passage here, starting at verse 53. When they had crossed over, so they're going across the lake, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once recognized him and rushed about the whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was, and wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. All. Even the Greek says all. All who touched it were healed. All who were sufficiently sick, Sure, there were no fakers? I don't know. Was there, you know, again, there's no discrimination, no testing. I mean, Jesus really just is the willy-nilly giver. He just gives willy-nilly. And because he gave willy-nilly, without precondition, people all over flocked to him. His compassion drew people to him. That unbounded generosity drew people to him. 
It wasn't his harshness. It wasn't his tough stance about law and order. It wasn't Jesus' work ethic. He was always running away from people, if you notice that, right? They come to him. He's always trying to get away. It was, his, it was this pure, unbounded, unrestricted generosity. And that's what we see in Jesus. So again, I go back through the New Testament, and I'm going to reiterate that pattern that you see over and over and over of it starts with Jesus, really inclusive, really giving, really generous, really just, you know, open, open, open. And then it just gets harsher and harsher and harsher as you go through the New Testament to the point where you're at the end and people are literally, literally being burned and all this kind of stuff. That trend line is unmistakable. From Jesus to a little stricter in Paul to 2 Thessalonians, where now we're telling, we're letting people go without food. What in the world happened? Well, the church got older. It matured. And they had to start, you know, organizations have to have laws and rules, right? The hard part always is to have laws and rules and boundaries without them becoming harsh. Because one thing that laws do is they can give you a cover for your harshness, right? I'm just doing what the law says, right? And sometimes the law does make you do things that are kind, seem kind of harsh, right? I, I, always, I always feel for the you know, child protective workers who have to go into a house and rip a kid away from a mom. Um, that has got to be one of the hardest parts of any job. And the things that they'll call you um, I actually did run into a, I, I did know someone who used to work in that line, and she had to switch churches uh, because some of her clients ended up being in church, and she'd get jumped in the bathroom uh, in between services. You're the one that took my kid. I understand that sometimes for the sake of what's just and good, the law has to do things that seem kind of harsh. But you would hope that the harshness is the last thing we do after we've spent our energy being as generous and as compassionate as we can. So if I have to sit and answer the question, what would, Je what would Jesus do? Jesus would clearly give generously to all. Jesus does not in the slightest bit seem worried that somebody somewhere is going to is going to be sitting at home in their basement playing Xbox when they could be at the big box store stocking shelves. I just, I don't see that. And I just can't get from Jesus who gives, you know, so freely to everyone to say that Jesus would want us as a society to let people starve to death, you know, if, as, a, as a just punishment for not willing to go and stock shelves at a big box store. Because honestly, in a lot of towns, if you don't have an advanced degree or skills training, that's all there is. I mean, in America, that's what you have. Retail, service, or high skill. If you don't have high skill and you're starving, what do you do? Um, they go to the big box store. And I have, sorry, I have my own sort of theory that a lot of the politics about cutting out programs cutting school lunches, cutting food programs, cutting, cutting you know, aid, uh, that it's really about 
making sure that there's desperate, hungry people, so desperate and hungry that they're willing to go and do cheap labor at big box stores. And that the big box stores and these kind of retail service industries are pressuring the politicians relentlessly. Um, and, they, and you've seen that, you know, you've seen that in our politics around COVID. We got to yank that COVID relief because people aren't going to work. I mean, $300 a, what, a week? I mean, you can't pay rent in Tucson on $300 a week. You, you, cannot, the, you cannot physically get a place to live. Nobody is driving Cadillacs and Lamborghinis around on their state of Arizona welfare checks. They're not even driving anything because you can't even afford the registration, the insurance, the car payment, plus the rent, plus it's just not enough. If you collected every benefit you have, it's not enough. But the complaint clearly was, and I heard this, if we take away the aid, then they'll go back to work. And I thought to myself, you know, the big box stores have more than enough money to pay people enough to lure them to work without having to use the threat of ch starving children as a motivator. And there's something really harsh about a society that talks about being a Christian society that feels that the way we keep the economic engine going is to keep a whole mass of people so desperate and poor and hungry. I just can't see that being Jesus. I just can't. Um, and so, yeah, I will lean on food policy towards a more give and I'm willing to be I'm, I'm willing to accept the fact that there will be some people who will be lazy instead of going and working one of those jobs um, you know and I'm okay with that I, I remember this comment that came to me from one of my long-term founding members of my first congregation when it came to all these beggars who come into churches and you know, they come in and then they give you the sob story and all, all the tragedy that happened. Then they tell you about every, how they've been to every social agency that exists in the entire universe and every one of them cannot get them anything. And their life is in an absolute urgent crisis now, 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 now. Therefore, give me cash. I mean, I've heard that spiel so many times. Every pastor's heard that spiel a thousand times. I learned real quickly, don't even bother trying to figure out this if the story's right or not. Don't bother trying to fact check it. There's no way you'll know. There's no way you'll know who's lying. You'll no way you'll know who's telling the truth. There's no way you'll know who's begging because they really are going through hard times. And there's no way you'll know if somebody's trying to make that a lifestyle. All I know is that's not a lifestyle I particularly want. I don't want to, I wouldn't want to live running from church to church trying to give sales pitches so that I can get small little, you know, food vouchers. That's not exactly a lifestyle. The cars I see people pulling up here in when they come to beg, those suckers are so, those are old clunkers. And as you know, with old cars, you can spend more money fixing them than just buy, paying for a new one. I'm not seeing anyone pulling up in Cadillacs and Lamborghinis asking me for money. Um, and, and, and I learned, and I, you know, and, and it was true. I did, you know, there were times when I gave and then the person would come back a second time with a completely different story. I'd catch them in the lie. And, and then they'd be, ah. And I remember this woman, she looked at me and she said, you know, if you're going to be compassionate, sometimes you will be taken advantage of. And that's just the way it is. And wouldn't you rather be taken advantage of than to be overly harsh? And this was a woman who, 
she could be pretty darn tight with money and things in, in so many ways. But that just stuck with me. Would you rather, let's play the would you rather game, would you rather be taken advantage of because you're too generous in giving? Would you rather have a few people taking advantage of your generosity to avoid having to do work? Or would you rather just watch children go hungry? Um, and what do you really think Jesus would approve of? And again, I just cannot see the Jesus who gave all food and who healed everyone who asked for it. Um, I just can't get from that to let them starve. I, I think, again, uh, the writer of Second Thessalonians was trying to be a little excessively law and order and excessively harsh and I'm going to go back and say, I'm going to go back to Jesus and his feeding the 5,000 and use that as the example. So when people come to me and, you know, we got a little food bank box and they ask if they want food, I'm like, there it is, help yourself. I don't bother with the story. Okay, maybe they amass a hoard of canned goods. Good for them. Let that be on them, not on me, right? Um, I'll sleep at night. Right? I'll sleep at night knowing that I might have contributed to somebody's canned food hoard. Um, you know, and I, you know, I suppose maybe they're going to use the money for drugs. But, I, I mean, how much drugs are you really going to get out of canned soup? I mean, come on. Um, it, it's, you know, and, and you're not going to stop them from using drugs by cutting off their food. I mean, that's, that's another reality, right? Um, so, fine, I'll be taken advantage of sometimes. Um, and I'm, I'm okay with that because I believe that that's what Jesus would want. So anyways, that's just kind of my thoughts, my ramblings about don't work, don't eat. Jesus did not say that. Um, we'll be back next week, uh, a couple more of these, and then uh, Lent will come, and I'm going to do a totally different series on Lent. We're going to look at some of the things in the cross, Jesus and the cross, and ways to understand that and the dynamics around that. So that should be a fun kind of you know, five-week Lenten thing that we'll do. But we, I'll do another one or two of these, and then we'll move on to that. Thank you all for tuning in, and uh, I hope you all have a great week. Uh, God bless.